Hello and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Today, we will talk about the role of the research analyst with Eric Saltz. Eric has more than 15 years' experience in equity research, most recently as an equity analyst at JP Morgan. He particularly focused on IPO research, covering more than 60 IPO transactions and multi-industries equity coverage. With Eric, we wanted to get a better understanding of how sell-side analysts perform their work in relation to an IPO, how it then relates to the coverage post-listing, and the lessons he has learned about how to engage with analysts and investors for a successful transaction. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments, or an offer for financial services or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording has no contractual value and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants in this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Eric, good morning. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you on the show. We have interacted you, uh, myself, in the past in the context of IPOs, um, an equity research analyst at JP Morgan. And uh, I wanted to have you here to talk about the IPO research process. And, you know, usually we have a podcast of 30, 40 minutes, but looking at all the number of questions and, and topics we could address, I think this show will last a bit longer. But Eric, maybe I should uh, let you introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you, Gauthier. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the show and speak about equity research in the context of IPOs. You know, I've had different equity research roles on the buy and sell side for several years in the last eight uh, at JP Morgan, where I recently left. And, and the majority of that time was spent on IPO projects, done more than 60 different IPO projects across uh, sectors and across all of the EMEA region. And that's been great. I mean, it's been a beautiful platform to sort of satisfy my interests in companies, in valuation, in the process of companies going to the market. And in doing that work, I've been able to interact with a lot of interesting colleagues who are sector specialists in equity research, but also with a lot of different investor types like yourselves and speaking to them in you know what is very important for the research role, that is the pre-deal investor education. And that's, that's how you and I uh, have met and where we've had like loads of interesting debates on companies which were looking to issue equity. Yeah. 60 IPO project, how many actually ended up being listed? Yeah, I think sort of half of that has listed. And there is, of course, a variety of reasons why things are successful or less successful, and we'll, we'll sure dive into that. But yeah, this, there is a lot of your show, earlier episodes of your show has highlighted. It's a complex process, and companies engage in many different activities while running an IPO process. So sometimes, you know, maybe there's an industry sale or there's private equity engaging or there's other elements why an IPO can't be successful. And of course, there's also situations that we've seen where like buyers and sellers are not on the same page eventually on the valuation and therefore things get postponed or fail. We'll definitely dive into the reasons of success or failures of, of IPOs. But maybe just basic question for everyone. Can you just explain what is actually equity research in, in general terms and then, you know, how it does differ in the context of an IPO? Yeah. So it's simply said, like equity research analysts are tasked with taking a view on listed companies, like on the valuation of listed companies and whether investors should buy or sell. So they have they develop financial models, they think about an equity story of a company, and they then have a valuation methodology where they can say, okay, we think a company should be worth X, share price is this, so there's upside, there's downside, and they articulate that story to investors. Now, in the context of an IPO, it's, of course, different because there's not a situation of a live share price. And there, the role of equity research is primarily to do the pre-deal investor education. And that is part of the IPO process, which sits very much at the back end of the whole IPO process. So if you think about it, companies prepare their IPO with their advisors, with their banks, and with many parts internally and externally involved. And when it's fairly close to launching the intention to float or ITF, then typically research gets involved. And there are three stages that research engages in. The first one is 
usually sort of two months ahead of an ITF, there is an analyst presentation where syndicate analysts come to the facilities of a company or elsewhere, and they get a full download and presentations from CEO, CFO, and key management personnel on the company in that so-called analyst presentation. The second following phase is that analysts go back and they develop their financial model, they write a report and create a presentation very much to explain the equity story, to compare the equity story with peers, with their coverage universe, and and preparing themselves to be in a position to convey that story to investors. Now, third part of this is, and that is depends on the company, if they really intend to list and they publish their ITF in the public domain, then the one of the first steps in that price finding exercise is that equity analysts go on the road or on the virtual road to speak to investors and discuss the equity story and gather feedback from the market about what people like, what people dislike, where they want to have more information and how they think in general about comparing the issuing company in question to other entities. Just to explain, you say many times ITF is intention to float. So basically, it's a confidential process until the company publicly announces intention to float. And then you can actually indeed you know, market the transaction to investors. Yeah. You said actually it's about conveying the equity story. So do you actually make a recommendation or not to buy or invest in the IPO? No. And why not? So in the context of the IPO, the task of research is very much to explain the situation rather than to take a view. And the taking a view situation comes after the listing, after the blackout, when analysts will be in a position to be to launch formal coverage. So it is very much about explaining, I think, different banks or brokers take somewhat different opinions in terms of the extent to which equity analysts can discuss valuation. But of course, in any situation, also in, I think, the most strict compliance frameworks, analysts will have financial forecast, which is their forecast. They will highlight peers. They will sort of do have benchmarking tables to compare the size of a company, uh, margins, the investment needs, qualitative, quantitative metrics. And, you know, so it will to quite a significant degree shed some light about, you know, where is peer valuation and where are near term, uh, like one, two, three year out uh, financial numbers on revenue, EBITDA, EBIT, uh, bottom line. So while there's maybe not a strict recommendation in terms of you should buy, you should sell or exact price target, there are a lot of pieces of the puzzle in any of these reports which should help investors to understand that story and help them frame their thoughts about where valuation should play out. Okay, valuation obviously being a key point of focus for, for the company as a seller, but also I, I would assume from you investment bankers, right? Because eventually you have a team of bankers who actually want a mandate. They told the client they would be able to advise them in the execution of an IPO and distribute the stock to the market on the basis of all their distribution, sales and research. So how independent are you actually as an equity research in that IPO process when you know some of the bankers have actually, you know, make a promise probably about their potential valuation? And your independence in terms of presenting this, this valuation framework, although you cannot make recommendation, you're still kind of guiding, I would assume, the investors around the potential valuation methodologies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's, there's a couple of elements to that question, right? So is research independent? Yes. I mean, there is a very large Chinese wall between ECM banking and research. So eventually, like research needs to be independent. They take an independent view. But of course, in that private process of gathering information and speaking to the company, you do get feed fed a lot of information, which is like prepared by the banks, by the company. And there is given the, also the secretive nature of the process, you, there's not a hell of a lot of room to do channel checks elsewhere. But you are independent. My experience is that most of the other actors are, they respect that independence and they also benefit from the independence of research. Because I think the questions asked during the process of developing the model and writing the report and also during the analyst presentation, the questions asked, the focus points that analysts lay out there are, of course, based on experience with other companies, with peer companies. So the, the company should be able to benefit from the question marks and the, the spin that analysts put on the story. And, you know, I'm sure there's situations where where, you know, and this point to elements of the equity story, which, you know, big companies or, or bankers may not want to highlight in too much detail, but, you know, it's important to then address that. 
So I think, yes, you're independent and there is importance to be independent. There is importance for that independence, but yeah, you're in a small research team working with a large entity with many advisors who have been thinking about this story and want to present it in the best way possible. And at the same time, you're at the PDIE process facing investors who, of course, haven't uh, an idea about, you know, they have to form their own view on valuation, which is independent. And those are eventually end clients of research and you're in the middle of that process. But then eventually BuySide has, has a very strong input in what uh, the eventual outcome of an IPO is. And do you have a lot of interaction with your bankers during the, when you write the research in terms of them reviewing it, editing it, or the company eventually? Do you have a, a lot of back and forth reviews and, and edits? I think it's important to highlight that that is a very formalized process. And that's and rightly so, because otherwise I think you can compromise the independence. But in the process of building the model and writing the report, there are like set stages where analysts can ask uh, questions that is usually in written form. You get written answers back. And there is a process of fact-checking, the factual accuracy check of reports with uh, the company and its advisors. So yes, there's back and forth. Then, you know, there are, uh, and when there are like factual inaccuracies, of course, I think it's good practice to make sure that things are factually accurate. And in that context, you know, there is a responsibility, an individual responsibility for analysts to sort of, when you disagree on something or when you, when you want to flag certain risk to be very precise in, you know, the way you formulate things. And usually, I think in all cases, you if you're precise and you know how to articulate certain risk or certain worries, you will be able to do so. I think JP Morgan at least had an interesting model because you are yourself dedicated to IPO research and uh, new IPOs, right? Which is not the case necessarily for other banks who win, you know, an IPO mandate. Typically, you know, if a bank win an IPO in retail, then they will ask the retail team to to start looking at this potential IPO and, and do the research and potentially initiate on it, right? So they don't really have, I guess, a say to say yes or no. It's a mandate we want, we have to execute it, right? On your side at JP Morgan, it was, okay, this is an IPO research team. Why this model? Why the difference? What the advantage or the disadvantage of this model? In the context of the role that I had, I always worked in close collaboration with uh, sector teams. Now, there are a couple of benefits to that model in a situation where there's a lot of IPO work. So first of all, the, the IPO is a fairly formal process where you have to sort of tick certain boxes. You have to build a model, you have to write a report, you have to cover off certain topics. Given that you're not really taking a view, there's a lot of that work which efficiently can be done by someone who is capable of modeling, capable of writing, and who is also capable of coordinating all of it with the sector team. So there's, a, there's efficiencies uh, there. Then you have a situation where, like as I said, you know, I've done 60 projects, about half that is listed. So while it's a lot of work, there's also quite a high fail rate where you do a lot of work and eventually it doesn't never sees the light of day. While equity analysts are eventually in their day-to-day remunerated and they're focused on you know, speaking to clients, their day-to-day coverage, and that's already enough work. And I think the last reason why I think the model in a market where there's a lot of IPO activity is very useful is that we've seen plenty of situations where, where an issue company isn't necessarily something which is close to existing coverage. We've seen situations where, yeah, and we've looked at the Belgian football club in the past. We've looked at a, an entity of which does visual effects for films. And that's all in public domain, by the way, so it's not secretive. And th- those two specific cases you know, probably would have fallen to media, but... You know, is it anywhere? The business models are nowhere close to what that team would cover. And in that sense, I think it's also useful to have someone who has a maybe more generalist and IPO specific view. Maybe I'd like to dive a bit deeper into the, the scope of, of research, right? And what are you actually doing in terms of research in the context, again, of a pre-deal investor education? So ahead of the company being listed, but during this phase where you have access to the management maybe the shareholders as well are ahead of the formal marketing of the IPO. In general speaking, how do you feel about the level of information available in that process and the timeline? Well, I think that very much differs case by case, right? I think, you know, most successful IPOs, they are very much ready at the point of the end of this presentation in terms of knowing how their financial disclosure is going to look like, knowing sort of what they want to report on the workings of their business model, the risks, then the, the market positioning. And I think in, in most cases, that is a remit which is quite well uh, thought of by, by companies and their advisors. There are also situations that I've seen where you know there is limitations in terms of the financial disclosure at the time of the analyst presentation. So they're still working, 
you know, to like finalize their perspectives or they're still working through, okay, how is the, our segmentation and our financial disclosure exactly going to look like? And I think those situations are more difficult because at the end of the day, a lot of time at the end stage in the PDIE is spent on the details of uh, financials. And so if you are, as a research analyst, still in the process of figuring out how things are going to look like, you're obviously a bit on the back foot when you're going to face investors at the end. So I think it's very important for the information, in particular the financials, to be very much ready at the start of the engagement with uh, with research. And do you have enough time to do channel checks and you know talk to competition and and again do the usual work you will do when you decide to initiate on a stock which is already listed? Do you have the same again uh, flexibility in the, the level of research you can do? And and I guess it's a subject of time as well. But um, can you do those channel checks, for example? No, I think it's, it's somewhat different, of course, and that's also because of you're dealing with private information, so you can't like go out there and say, okay, we're looking at company X, Y, Z. So in that sense, there is a bit more of the restriction. But I think you know the main value add that you can give as a research analyst is like the benchmarking, you know, helping clients eventually to benchmark an issuing company versus their peers. And for that, you can of course rely on a lot of prior work and sector work. And because eventually that type of comparison is the thing that you guys do, whether it's on financials, whether it's on ESG, on on risks, on whatever. And helping to frame that discussion is very important because also a lot of the PDIE will eventually deal with how can we compare this company versus its peers. And that is usually something where analysts, I think, can add a lot of their own insights. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, this benchmarking, because eventually, if I want to you know, uh, be a bit controversial, you could say the value of PDIE research is limited if it's just a copy-paste of the prospectus, right, of information that the company is actually making public when it formally launched its IPO. But, you know, the, this analysis of benchmarking versus versus comp versus the sector peers, and obviously the objective is to compare those stories and the potential for growth, the risk, obviously, and, and the, the valuation at the end of the day. That's something the analyst can give some perspective. But that will require, obviously, that the investors have had enough time either to look into the sector or to the peers and are you know, somehow educated, right? And again, the timeline is a bit challenging for investors as well, you know, to be ready and have such a discussion about the benchmarking and, and, and the sector. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think there's also, especially in European context, I think there's plenty of situations where a prospectus comes out very close to the actual listing. And, you know, the information which is given at the end of presentation is, of course, like an abstract of what will be in the prospectus. You know, so it's, I think there is a, a benefit of having research reports out there and giving investors an opportunity to see that abstract and with the addition of the, of the comparisons to list the two potential list peers and discuss that. But I do think you know, that I sympathize with you know, your view that the more time investors have to digest information and to think about a case, the probably better informed their decision making is. And you know, I'm, I'm not too familiar with how the process in the US is run. I've been engaged in, I think, one project for the European company to list there. And I think there it's much more common that there is a decent and detailed level of disclosure out longer before an actual listing giving investors more time to build up understanding rather than doing that very much at the end stage, which you may be more familiar with that than I am. But yeah, the time of information, the opportunity for buy side to research things, to think about things, to benchmark things, that can be fairly short. And that is probably not always a benefit. No, you're right. So in the US, typically you have an S1 filing yeah. available before. So you actually have a lot of information before you can you know, interact with an analyst ahead of the IPO. Yeah. In France, you have the document base, which is also somehow similar. Yeah. In the UK, it's moving that direction, but the issue of the prospectus is probably not soon enough. So I think you know things are changing and improving, actually, but I still think there is, there is a bottleneck somewhere where this amount of information available comes a bit too late, at least for, for having good discussion with the research analysts as part of the PDIE process. What is usually um, the, the most challenging part of an equity story when you look at the research report you've done before initiation, so during the PDA, what is the most challenging part of equity stories usually to actually research on and form a view from your perspective? So I think if you think about the equity story and what's important, I think there's a couple of things. So first, I think it needs to be crystal clear why an entity is coming to the listed market and why you know your an IPO is a better alternative than other financing or capital structure opportunities 
the other things are what is unique about a certain situation? Why is it? Why is a certain company differentiated from its peers? Like, what are the unique critical elements of the story? And you know, why can investors have a reasonable comfort in the management guidance and financials which are provided in terms of forecast by management? And also, why can they have comfort, you know, analyst numbers, which in IPO case are usually close to that management guidance? And at the same time, the risks around the market positioning of a company. So why, you know, are the competitors of an entity not going to be developing as such that the issuing company in question may face strong competitive risks in the future? So those elements of, you know, why IPO, what's unique, what is the market positioning and and sort of the, the competitive risk, the comfort with financials are critical elements of the equity story. And as a last thing, which is also part of the equity story and discussed much in PDIE, it's the alignment of uh, management teams with the buy side. I think in many cases, and there's also, uh, I think, a potential improvement to be made in many cases when I've done PDIE, the exact structure of management remuneration wasn't always exactly clear. Like there was a message of, yeah, it's going to be in line with market best practice. And, you know, there's no reason not to believe it, but I think for investors, and rightly so, that alignment, that point of alignment is extremely critical. I think investors want a good level of comfort on why is this team, which is the management team, is is critical for any situation. Why are these people the ones that are going to execute this next phase in the listed situation? And, you know, you you want them to stay on board and you want them to be aligned. So those things, I think, are all super key in getting the equity story right and being convincing to investors. Yeah. I mean, this point of alignment of interest between investors and sellers, obviously, but but also management is important. And clearly, there's there's not enough information about this compensation model that the new company will actually implement. Although, as you say, back to the benchmarking point, you know, we can benchmark what the competitors do, and that's available information. And you will expect that the company also does that benchmarking and, and come with the plan already at the time of the IPO. And I know as well, some even some private equity sponsors, for example, know that there's a challenge as well to get management aligned to stay after the IPO. And there's discussion about how to make sure their investment package is also not all about maximizing the exit and the IPO valuation, but also giving an incentive to stay longer after the IPO because we actually have seen a trend or management teams leaving probably too soon after the IPO and seeing the IPO as an exit, unfortunately. Although it makes sense because, you know, they probably invested themselves a lot of time and money when the company was private ahead of the IPO. But that raised a question about alignment of interest with new investors. Do you see investors more or less receptive to different IPO rationals? You've done 60 IPOs, some have you know, been through, but again, any good IPO rational from your experience? Yeah, so there's, of course, plenty of reasons why companies come to the market. But I think the things that resonate best are like, stories where investors clearly see that there is a next growth avenue and there is a need for sort of new investors to come on board, a need for primary and a clear investment plan and a company which is which is also likely to be utilizing that listed currency when they are on the market and maybe for M&A, for maybe internal compensation. It could be all sorts of reasons to have a listed currency and to use the market to get to, to find new funds and maybe also in the future find new funds. And I think those stories and also potential sort of carve-outs of uh, larger entities where it makes sense to be a separate entity with a more clear focus of management that I think are also typical stories that resonate, that resonate well. And of course, we've seen plenty of situations where it is, where there are IPOs, where it's a secondary event. So existing shareholders looking to maybe recycle their own capital and find other investment opportunity. And, and of course, that's fine. Like there's no, anyone owning stock in a company can, of course, decide that, you know, it's time to do something different or like maybe there's can be a rationale for finding different shareholders. There could be plenty of reasons. But I think in a, in a pure secondary situation, it's not so surprising that, you know, there may be a bit more skepticism from the buy side in, in terms of like, why, if this is such a great story, why are you going to sell? <laughs> Of course, these situations can be successful, but pure secondary is usually less, yeah, less well received than you know a situation where there is an obvious need to be on the on the listed market. And that's also why I think I said earlier, like the question about why should a company be a public entity is a, an absolutely key question, and it's probably the thing that a lot of other questions and other work that you other work streams come down to. You know, you really 
need to live and breathe as a management team, as a company, you know, an IPO is the best thing that a company can do. And if you're, I think if you're sort of ambiguous in that, the external world will sort of find out, they will feel that. And does it make it wrong? Yeah, I think it doesn't make it perfect either. You know, I think actually it would be very helpful if analysts talk about their their views on on the IPO rationale because a lot of those IPO research, PA research, talk about the company as a sector of the benchmarking. But rarely we actually see the opinion and the views of the analysts about the IPO rationale and, and why it makes sense or not. And and I think that actually that's always a discussion we have of the records, but it's not something you're going to read in the, in the research. For CEOs and, and CFOs listening to us, any recommendations when you look at all those analyst presentations you've done and this PDA research work, right? anything, um, any tips, any recommendation you would give them in terms of how to be better prepared or uh, interact with the um, research community? Yeah, well, I think it's really key that at the starting point of engaging with research, at the point of the end of the presentation, you should be crystal clear on how your financials are going to look like. Because a lot of the questions at the end of this presentation are eventually going to be about that. And the reason for it is that eventually the questions from investors to analysts will be about financials. So that is a super important part. And of course, like the strategy, the other part, like ESG, anything discussed in energy presentation is important. But, you know, having the financials, having the detailed level of disclosure, which like it will be in the eventually in the prospectus, that is, I think, really critical to have. Another thing I would say, and it comes down to, I think, a couple of things we said earlier, like articulating why the company should IPO and also having looked at your company with a public market eye. So having looked at peers yourself in the preparation phase long before research gets involved is, I think, a very impactful and powerful thing to do. Because eventually, like if investors want to benchmark and sell-side analysts want to benchmark, you don't have to like exactly point them, you know, our peer is this and, you know, these, and there's all sorts of similarities, but at least you need to sort of get the pieces of the puzzle right and also speak about that in the end of this presentation and the thing that may help for that is that long before you engage with the sell side i mean you guys are likely to do early look meetings or testing the waters and the type of presentations that i've seen about that in the back end are usually like they're they're quite thin right they're not in europe they're like you know they're nice the the, the level of detail is probably fairly basic and based on that then anyone can say oh we've met so many investors and we've got great engagement but you know you need to take it with a pinch of salt given that you know the things you've given them are like not that detailed so if you think about these three elements fairly early on in the process so why should you ipo you know how do we compare to peers and in early look with investors obtain feedback on what people really think based on a good level of information that can probably help you very much in the process later on that at the stage of facing equity research and then like the pdi at the stage of pdie you're very well equipped in in all these key elements of the equity story very good comments. And I think it's also the question about the, the IPO readiness, because ideally you give obviously more information and valuable information and financials, right? If you have those financials ready, if you have everything clean and, and out there, the question is, you know, how, how early to start this preparation work? Yeah. And at the same time, I think the companies and the advisors want to, um, if, if there is a, a window to do the IPO, the market timing is difficult to control. So you have to balance timing with, but that's why the, the point is, you know, start as early as, as possible and potentially years ahead of an IPO, right? In terms of financial and numbers of IPO readiness, you, you have to plan this ahead. Another interesting question from your experience, again, do you quickly see if a company is IPO ready in terms of either financials or governance model or any red flags or red flags would quickly tell you, okay, this is coming too early, they're pushing it, it shouldn't be an IPO versus, okay, this company is actually ready to IPO and that, that's, that's a great candidate. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you, of course, history is important. Like, you know, some consistency in the disclosure of the like last three years of financials, that is, I think, important. And of course, things can differ from year to year, but like depending on the explanation, the more consistent that recent history is, I think the better. We've seen situations of companies which like have fairly little history, very high growth rates and may hope to sort of extrapolate that into the future, but that, of course, is not always the, the reality. And so that type of consistency, I think, is important. And then, you know, those reasons for IPO is, are also like an element of readiness, so to say. Like, if there's a need to go to, to find a new funds, then that is part of that rationale. 
moving to the phase of investor education. So when you actually have done your research, you have done your presentation on the back of the information given to you by, by the company, you have done some channel checks if you had time or not, some benchmarking obviously within, within the sector that you know and the peers. Now it's about you know, communicating, conveying that equity story, as you said, to the investors. What can you tell about the um, profile of those investors engaging in, in this process? Because again, it's a process which is you know, time-consuming, there's timing constraints. Not everyone is familiar with a company, with a sector before being public, obviously. So who are the investors engaging in this process? So there's, a, there's quite a wide range of investors engaging in the process. So it's, a, it's usually a mixture of like sector specialists, long-only funds, hedge funds, and also like yourself, specialists in IPOs. And you could sort of say there's, there's sort of two types of discussions that you have. There are investors that we've seen who have been who haven't been in, really involved in the early process so they're quite new to the story and then the meeting that research has with them is very much about like going through all the domains of the equity story so what's the business model what's the market positioning what are risks what are potential peers and how do those financial forecast guidance how does it line up and that usually covers the hour easily. And the other type of investors are like yourselves, like people who have been into the process, who've been following, you know, potential IPOs, yeah, who are quite experienced in dealing with IPO situations. And their discussions are much more focused about certain specifics of an equity story, about certain doubts. And you know, those discussions are the value of the feedback is yeah of high quality given the sophisticated nature and the work that those buy side groups have done. And then it's, yeah, sometimes it's a little shorter debate, but it's, it is very pointed and yeah, structured. And over the last eight years where you've been involved in this process, you know, notice any evolution again about, you know, the universe of investors engaging. This talks about, you know, small and mid caps universe being less and less research or less, you know, fewer uh, fundamental investors covering the space. And again, IPOs tend to be small mid caps. So did you notice kind of, again, a lower participation fund managers in that category of company size or not really? Well, so to be fair, so you, so when you do uh, like 10 days usually of pre-deal investor education and you, prior to COVID, we were spending time traveling, visiting physically. And during COVID, you know, you're, I've spent a lot, most of the time on Zoom speaking to, to investors and those days are always packed. Like, you know, you do 10, 12 meetings a day sometimes. So you cover off a lot of investors. So in that sense, I haven't really noticed the difference of doing less. You know, maybe even for analysts, you do maybe more meetings than a couple of years ago when you were physically going. But eventually what I've noticed, and that is something where research is less involved, you know, eventually it seems in Europe, there are probably less lines in the books. So while for research, there is... Uh, still like plenty of opportunity to speak to a lot of people, the participation and the, that sort of the, the differentiation of investors eventually engaging, like, at least if you read through press and news articles and, and speak to people in the market, it seems that there may be some less participation in terms of the number of parties uh, involved. But it's, it's difficult to sort of say to be very precise in that. Interesting. Uh, there have been probably more meetings, as you say, thanks to Zoom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in terms of the number of, or the quality, rather, of the feedback you receive, how helpful is actual feedback really to, again, convey back to the management or, or the bankers in terms of appreciation of the equity story or valuation views? Do you really get what you expect from the investors or how will you qualify this level of feedback usually? I think like quality from the feedback uh, from investors that are uh, that have been engaged in the story for a longer time, I think is very high. And I think that is also very helpful. And I think selling shareholders and management should take that on board in order to like structure their own messaging. If you're less well prepared, then of course you can give a bit of a view, but it's probably less of that, which will be super meaningful to selling shareholders and, and, and management. I think it's always a matter of like if you the more engaged you are, the more knowledgeable you are, the better the quality of the feedback, of course. Any other views you think or, or tips or recommendation you have in terms of this um, investor education process where you think could be even improved or where you might be able to get even more value out of it back, back to the company in terms of appreciation of the equity story or, or valuation feedback? Do, do you think there's ways to, to improve that process? Well, I think if you think about the whole IPO process, including sort of the preparation work prior to the part where research gets involved, I think 
having more detailed feedback early on from the buy side and or maybe involving research analysts in like earlier stage to sort of uh, the, the uh, mirror reviews uh you know of course there's a compliance like work through that you have to do in terms of making sure that the independence stays there that is probably useful because it's good to have a differentiated opinion from either independent analysts or buy side you eventually gonna look to sell the story too rather than advisors who may be very much thinking in in one direction Post-IPO, so do you systematically initiate on the company that you have researched on during the IPO process? Do you actually have to as well? You, you mentioned this blackout period of 40 days. Basically, it's a period where for 40 days, you're not allowed to, to initiate any, any research, any comments after the IPO. But then after 40 days, you're actually free to start initiating. Is that an option or that's something you have to do? No, that's something you have to do. And it's and it's usually like in my situation, working with sector teams, it's usually the sector team doing it. I mean, I've done some of them given like they were the differentiated nature of, of the companies in question. But yes, you have to do that. I've never seen a situation in recent years where that hasn't been done. And usually on the day of the blackout ending, you see all the syndicate banks initiating on a on stock. And how often would you uh, initiate with a sell post IPO? Mm, that's not something I've seen very often. Uh, I, I doubt I've ever seen that. You know, I, I mean, I, I get where the question comes from. You do have to appreciate that, like, there is a bit of time passed between the, the listing and that point of initiation. Not a lot, but there's some time passed. So there is, I think there is opportunity to be a bit different in terms of, you know, where valuation, what type of recommendation and valuation you put on the initiation versus what has happened at the time of the IPO. But, you know, you are free to do it. Like if you have good reasons to uh, to initiate with a sell, you, eventually it's your own responsibility, but you're right that it hasn't happened often. I've initiated on Storescope and in the past, I think we were neutral after the IPO and not long after their reporting, we've downgraded that to an underweight. But I, I, I hear you on uh, that. That's not something that happens often. And post-IPO, another um, risk for companies is the lack of liquidity in their shares. There's different ways to actually mitigate that risk. Uh, one being obviously the, the offer size, but also the, the number of research initiating and covering the stock. Also the role of the IR being appointed before the IPO or after the IPO, that matters. Based again on your experience, what do you think a company should do during its IPO process to make sure this liquidity is not drying up too fast after the IPO and actually they can maintain a good engagement with the buy side and the sell side? Maybe two different types of answers. Like, so one, I don't think there's much sort of research involvement possible in terms of, you know, who's going to get allocated shares. And, you know, part of sort of the liquidity directly after an IPO probably depends partly on like who are the types of investors who have been allocated shares. And that is not something that research is involved in. So is it possible to improve that? You know, there's, I think there's also a balance there. Uh, one, like, which investors do you choose to be on your register? Two, like, how much do you actually want to float? You know, what, you know, do you want to get tension in the book or do you want to maximize the flow? Like, you know, there's quite a few things that you want, that you need, that a company needs to balance out. Very few of that is, is something which is in the span of control of research. So it's more, I think, other type of advisors and, and the demand from buy side that will define that. But I mean, liquidity eventually is a key thing, right? And then it's all, of course, something that uh, all these parties involved need to consider in the process because like aftermarket liquidity is important. If there's no aftermarket liquidity, it's probably likely less engagement with sell side. There's less, if there's less coverage, you know, the, the equity story may get lost a little. Like, so there's, there's all sorts of, of implications of the situation with, with not such a liquid, uh, in a situation where it's not such a liquid share. And in terms of the communication uh, from the company with you guys sell side post IPO, again, sometimes we see management first exercise for them to communicate that numbers with the market. And sometimes they learning by doing and necessarily and communicating and conveying the message that as, as the market would like to hear them. Sometimes they may be being too open, too transparent. And I've heard CFOs you know, telling me that actually, if I knew if someone told me how to manage those earnings call, I think my share price will have moved up and down on the day of the earnings. You know, taking first the, the easy, good questions and not, not the difficult question from the sales side analyst during the Q&A is an example as well, right? So again, based on your experience, any good recommendation in terms of communication post-IPO from CEOs, CFOs to the market? 
there's also very much related to a couple of things that, that we've discussed earlier. Like, you know, you to be very strong on you know, the guidance that you give. So you need to meet, of course, in the early reporting directionally, you need to be on track in line with what you've been telling the market previously. And I think it's probably a good idea for them to do dry runs of quarterly or half year, or whatever presentations before you start engaging with investors, right? I think if you if you list a company and then, for example, six weeks after you have to do an earnings call and you've never sort of made sure that your internal organization is aligned to get the right numbers and the right tables and the right story up, then you're firefighting from day one. And that's probably not a good idea. And so I think you need to line up, you know, your advisors, which again is probably not the research, but others, uh, your auditors, your, your, uh, your independent advisors, your banks to make sure that prior to that listing, you are, you're equipped and you need to have a finance organization who is staffed well enough to deliver on that day. And, you know, probably a dry run of that should be a good, a good exercise. And, you know, you can listen to earnings calls of peers and, and you will see uh, the type of questions that are being asked and the focus points that investors will have. And, and many times, and as you know, these, these things are about, you know, growth. They're about margins. They're about like if there are differentiating numbers, then you know there needs to be an explanation for them. So you know, of course, you can't prepare exactly on how things are going to play out, but there are, I think, definitely opportunities to engage in some best practice. Yeah, definitely. The um, IR function, investor relation function, sometimes again being appointed during, before, during the IPO process, sometimes after. Yeah. Does it make a difference? Do you see a difference? Do you think that really matters in your opinions? I think it definitely matters for sort of the quality of the, I mean, the quality of IR, I think is in Europe quite good in my, in my opinion. But I think if you appoint an IR early, then you can really have someone work with you and maybe, you know, internally coordinate part of the process. And it's an extremely good learning exercise. I mean, it's a good learning exercise for analysts or for buy side to work on IPO. But let's consider what an extreme great learning experience this is for an IR to be involved early and not actually to contribute in that process. And I, I agree with you. Like sometimes you see situations where IRs are appointed fairly late in the process and they may go on the roadshow with management and they're there and they're there to learn. And it's probably a great learning opportunity for them to be in all these meetings. But you know, I would think that if you appoint them like earlier on, like half a year, a year in advance, then rather than the IPO being a learning opportunity it's not only a learning opportunity but also a very valuable contribution opportunity for them so i think appointing them early is probably the benefit of company and of a listing situation i would say there's one question actually which i have is back to this initiation post ipo so where you actually now can recommend uh, as you say most most of the time can be a buy or neutral very rarely if never a sell but this IPO discount, which, you know, there's a lot about, a lot of feedback around those IPO processes. Okay, what's your fair value? And then what is the discount you want to this fair value? And interestingly, people forget that when you have a buy recommendation yourself in the universe as a research analyst, you tend to see some upside to where the shares are trading by definition. This is what you're buying. And this upside typically will be 20, 25, 30, 40, 50%, right? This is the type of upside I would assume the sell side analysts want to see on a stock he's going to recommend to buy. Why then IPO's discount should only be 10, 20% if at the end of the day in new coverage, you actually see you know 30% plus average upside. Do you, do you have a view on this IPO discount? I, I mean, this is, there's, there's many parts to, that, to the answer of that question. <laughs> I think usually what I've seen is that, of course, in junior PDA discussions, there's an ask for an IPO discount. And depending on sort of the strength of situation, like it's probably about 10 15, 20% that, that, that people ask for. You know, there's plenty of stocks out there which are not IPO situations, but it's all the public domain where there's consensual buys uh, with significant upside and the share price isn't moving into that direction whatsoever. So this, there's plenty of those situations and you know them and anyone who's on the, on the buy side will see situations where you see, okay, there's 10 buys on these stocks, but actually there's nothing going in that, nothing's going in that direction. So what's wrong here? I mean, of course, price targets are part of what research does. And I think they're an important element of sort of the work that you do. But in my view and the way I've, I, mean, I have done coverage of companies, like in addition to IPOs, I think the value of discussion that the, that the sell side and the research analysts bring is much more about the direction and the confidence on the forecast rather than the eventual price target. And I think this definitely for the sophisticated investors, yes, they will look, some will look at the price target and rightly so, and they will look at the recommendation and rightly so, but eventually 
essentially that is not the only thing that, that's the most defining thing. Yes, it's important, but it is much more about, you know, the constructive debate and the dialogue on the risks, on the detailed financials, on the, on the confidence of forecasting guidance and strategy uh, rather than price target. But I admit, like, you know, there is, I hear you when you say like, it's strange if, you know, on one day you're asking for a significant discount and not too long after you're suggesting this, uh, this premium. Uh, yeah. But you're 100% right. What really matters, at least in our opinion, is obviously the trajectory of the earnings and and the story, but the confidence you have on those numbers and and, and the guidance. Because again, if the management can deliver or actually beat the guidance, you will eventually get investors around you and run your story interested in buying your stock and and you will close that IPO discount um, that that you think you have sold at at the IPO. But it's, it's still amazing that there's too many IPOs were first set of numbers, they're actually not meeting this guidance, missing it. And that's that's a missed opportunity because you've been telling a story, you have you know set numbers that you should be able to deliver. And this is actually a great opportunity to, to build a track record for management. And this is where they should be focusing on much more than the IPO valuation is actually their ability to convince that this is a reliable management. They're going to over-deliver. And the valuation will actually be very good to you. And you'll try to the premium to those peers. Guess what? Yeah. No, I agree. And, and like for, I think for management doing an IPO, you know, it's an important part of their careers and you want that to be a success. And that's also like if you early on, I think, start to think about, you know, the, that equity story, that comparison with peers, your, the way you're going to like present your financials and, you know, the better positioned you are to give uh, guidance which you will meet you know and of course there can always be things that hiccups why you know their trajectory differs and you know the, i think the buy side and sell side will they will sympathize with situations that are out of control they may not like it but you know that's that's just the nature of the of the work but yeah you, you need to make to make sure as a management team that you're in a position to guide like sufficient and with confidence and, and that you have an organization that can show in early reporting stages that you're actually meeting what you've told the market at the IPO. We're getting to an end, unfortunately. Yeah, we're close to the hour. We're yeah. close to the hour already, <laughs> right? There's one topic uh, important to us, ESG, and research has picked up on that for the you know the last few years. And now you actually have dedicated sections of ESG in sales side report, both initiations and even during the PDIE phase. So so clearly this is this is a very good trend, at least in Europe for sure. From your perspective, do investors actually care during this PDIE investor education, or is it more tick the box exercise from your perspective? Or actually, you get pushback, you get questioned. This is something which is really on the agenda of the investors in an IPO context. Yeah, so for sure, over the years that I've been involved, is you know the importance of it and sort of the embeddedness of ESG within the equity story has been become more important from like the corporate perspective. You know, it's in more recent and its presentations, it's been a bigger part of the and a more sort of integrated part of the story versus a couple of years ago. I think for investors, it is I think partly the same. It is more ESG investors. The the G in that, like corporate governance, I think has always been a rightly so very important because it relates to the alignment that we discussed earlier, like board composition, management remuneration. So I've always seen that as important. And I think there's, there's been very few meetings where I haven't discussed that, that governance alignment and, and the governance structure. The E and the S, I think, are they're material in different ways for different companies. Like if you're a company which does, uh, which has to, to source certain precious raw materials elsewhere, then like this E is probably a key thing and it will definitely be something which is picked up by investors. And you know, if you're a software developer or an e-commerce platform, it, that in particular may matter a little less. So then there's less uh, debate on it. But for sure, you see, it's, an, it's as you say, like it is something which is evolving. There's much more attention for it. There's much more professionalism. There are lots of also in the advisory space I think people engaged in the topic and it's an important topic and you know, in different regions across Europe you see investors more focused on ESG than in others but you know I think regions where you know there was traditionally five years ago less focus on uh, on these E, S or G topics or like maybe the E and S then uh, you do see uh, yeah, like UK, US investors picking up on that too. Maybe you think about Nordics, uh, Netherlands, France, the level of advantage in, in that space is probably a bit bigger than, than elsewhere or Germany, but you definitely see that pick up. Yeah, 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 and very often it can be put forward as um, a reason why why not participating in an IPO, just, just the lack of disclosure 
that's that's an easy win. You should get your disclosure out there, sustainability reports, uh, your governance model, obviously everything ahead of the IPO because otherwise it's just going to you know, limit the number of investors actually engaging more and more. Yeah, I think for yeah for some of that disclosure, of course, there's more sort of best practice out there already. And as you know, like on environmental targets, there's so much that you can potentially do. So I appreciate that for some companies, it's still like a bit of a figuring out exercise. You know, what do we exactly want to disclose? What do we need to disclose? And coming legislation will maybe help with that a bit and and involvement of, you know, banks, advisors, uh, investors, all thinking about that is probably going to help and and improve and structure that disclosure better in, in all areas are also to benchmark on ESG criteria, which is gaining in importance. Yeah, definitely. The benchmarking is, is something which can be done. The, the, the peers are listed. They have maybe some information or not. And as per valuation, you're going to benchmark. And, uh, and I think that's something which is uh, possible based on public information. Eric, two questions. Any war memories about an IPO process you can share? Anything funny or less? I mean, one of the, I think, interesting and, and good memories for me was the, when we did the IPO of JD Peach, which we prepared actually in the, in the start of COVID. We were about to sort of do the PDIE and then it became March 2020 and, and everyone was sent home. And where we were used to do everything, like in physical meetings, travel around and go elsewhere, like not too long after, you know, the decision was made to do that fully virtual. And, uh, and, you know, that was the first virtual IPO we did. And it was a big success in terms of, you know, being able to speak to a lot of people who were, who were all like at home, uh, you know, sitting in t-shirts and, and, and in their, in their cozy atmosphere of, of their house, make, trying to make the best of what they could do. And it was, I mean, I, I really look back at that at, uh, with, uh, with a lot of pleasure. And, and since then, we've done a lot of meetings and been able to facilitate a lot of meetings with investors uh, through that technology. And that's been, that's been good. Was COVID the good news for the JDP and, and coffee consumption at home and, and more expensive instant coffee? <laughs> that I, I, I don't know, but uh, I'm not sure whether that was, but it was definitely not, not good for out of home. <laughs> Any company you would like to uh, get engaged in an IPO process, if you could initiate research on them before the listing? I think one of the people prior, in the prior episodes of the show said, mentioned IKEA, uh, which I think is a, was a very uh, interesting interesting name. And the one what I, which I would add, and probably it's probably never going to list, the toy factory like Lego in, in Denmark, that, that I think would be a beautiful, a beautiful company to do research of. But I, I doubt it will ever lift. So Nordic companies, but in both cases, at least, I guess, you know enough the product, so the channel checks and the research and decisions will be... <laughs> the channel checks are already done, yeah. <laughs> yeah the channel checks are already done. But I mean, to be fair, like this, 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 the long list of companies at the wheel core, like they look to come to the market, or maybe next year, or and, in, in, and I think listeners and you will know, they will know those names and they've been in the, in the public domain. I think there's some beautiful companies that potentially will live in the near future. So as fantasy aside from IKEA or Lego, but but you know things like Gelderma or CVC or it could be I think very interesting entities and you know it's it's all over the news that you know those those companies think about potential listing uh, in the near future. Yeah, that's why we're hearing companies have been private for longer, and and I think some LPs and investors are, are expecting some liquidity back. And there's there's a time I guess you need to go back to the equity market to get this liquidity. So let's see if um if that's going to happen. Thank you very much, Eric. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we'll host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from Eric today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you would like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact at ipostories.com.